from the prophet Amos, and that this is, this is what he wants to talk about. And uh, if you were paying attention, when you, if you heard that voice at the end of the reading of Scripture, um, that came from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during his uh, I Have a Dream speech that was delivered uh, in Washington, D.C., and it'll be almost exactly 50 years uh, this month uh, when he gave that speech in 1963. And uh, that speech really would go on to define an era of American history. And uh, it's in the words of Amos the prophet that we're looking at uh, right at the heart of it. And uh, what some don't know, though, about that uh, speech is uh, some of the story behind it. And uh, Taylor Branch is a, is a historian. He's written several books on Martin Luther King. Uh, he pointed out that, you know, right up until that Amos quote, uh, Dr. King was, was reading from a script that he'd prepared for this speech. And uh, right when he said these words, and I won't do them justice, he's a great order. He said, we will not be satisfied till justice rolls like waters, and we will not be satisfied till righteousness rolls like a mighty stream. When he said those words, the crowd listening to him went wild. And uh, he, he, uh, they started yelling back at him like at a church service, like, preach it, tell it, amen. And uh, Dr. King knew in that moment I, he could not go back to his prepared speech. It had changed. The, the whole dynamic had changed. And he started speaking to a nation as a prophet would do. He said, I have a dream. And he went from Amos to Isaiah. He said, one day all children of God will be judged no longer by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I have a dream today. I have a dream that every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be brought low. And the glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I have a dream and it was the language of the Old Testament prophets that inspired the conscience of a nation that day. And God's words about justice have a way of doing that. And they still do uh, when God's people take them seriously. And uh, the reason is because the pursuit of justice, the, pr- the protection of the vulnerable and the poor and the oppressed and the disenfranchised in our society is not an optional endeavor for the church. And it never has been. It's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, and it's at the heart of the God that we serve. And we cannot understand what real faith is until we understand what justice is, until our hearts are filled with compassion for the vulnerable and are filled with a hatred for injustice, the injustices of this world. We have not fully understood what God himself is doing in his creation and with his people. So there are three things. There are three things Amos will teach us this morning as we look at his book on justice. And he will will tell us how the true meaning of Christianity and the faith is revealed in in justice. And here are those three three things. First, justice reveals who God is, reveals who God is. Second, reveals who we are. And third, justice reveals what true faith is. So first, how does justice reveal who God is? Well, turn to Amos chapter 5 if you haven't already. Uh, if you get to uh, Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel, just keep turning to the right, and eventually you'll get to Amos. And uh, while you're doing that, just a few words on Amos and who he was and his times. Uh, Amos was a prophet in the 8th century in Israel, which is around the same time as the prophet Hosea, who we looked at last week, if you were here. And uh, during Amos's lifetime, the superpowers, the two superpowers of the region, uh, were weakened politically for several reasons. And so Assyria, the Assyrian Empire to the north, uh, this big green blob, for, for lack of a better word, and uh, Egypt to the south, these two superpowers were weakened. And uh, God's people in Israel uh, enjoyed an incredible and unprecedented amount of independence during this time. And with that, 
uh, came a tremendous amount of wealth. Uh, Israel could control these, these crucial trade routes that ran through their country, and that generated a lot of money. It started flowing in. And yet, as it often does, and we get this, this wealth led to an incredible amount of disparity between the classes, between the wealthy and the poor. And the rich began systematically oppressing and taking advantage of the poor in their society. And we'll talk about more how they did that in just a minute. And Amos comes along, he's called as a prophet, and he speaks directly to this growing uh, disparity and injustice that he sees in the Israelite society. But Amos isn't simply giving us his opinion on justice and injustice. He is speaking for God. He is a prophet of God. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 4, Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel. And then starting in verse 10 of chapter 5, They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know, says God, how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous and who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. And here in Amos chapter 5, we begin to see that this pursuit of justice is not just the heart of his book, it's the very heart of who God is. It reveals who he is. And this basic point, God's love of justice, is all over the Old Testament. You see it in Psalm 146. He executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free, and the Lord loves those who live justly. He watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. And you see it in Zechariah Chapter 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. And this list could go on and on and on. We could go to Isaiah. We could go to Micah, to Mark, to Luke, to James. Books all over the Bible talking about this. And it just shows, that this the first thing it shows, is that justice reveals about God what, exactly who he cares about the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. And theologians, these these four groups of people are put together so often in Scripture, they're actually referred to as the quartet of the vulnerable by theologians. And God talks about them over and over and over again. God could tell everything he wanted to know about a society by looking at how those four groups of people were treated. Now, this isn't to say that God doesn't care about everyone. The Bible clearly teaches that. But there only seems to be four kinds of people that God goes out of his way to talk about in the Bible. The widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor. And it makes sense because in ancient society, and it's still true today, these were the people that society neglected. These were the people society ignored. These were the people who would fall through the cracks. And God doesn't simply care about these people. He identifies with them throughout Scripture in a shocking way. And one pastor put it this way. He said, if God had a business card, it would not say God, uh, creator and sustainer of the universe. And it would not say God, the the all-knowing and the all-powerful. It would say God, father to the fatherless, husband to the widow, provider for the poor. This is how God introduces himself throughout much of the Old Testament. And where the other gods of the time around, the, around Israel were always associated with kings and priests and prestige and wealth and honor, God is always in the same breath in the Bible mentioned with the oppressed 
and the down and out and the dirt poor. Justice reveals who God cares about, but it also reveals how he wants to care for them. And this is, a, this is a subtle point in the book of Amos, but it's so important for us to hear. Because it's clear from in, in Amos' book that he's delivering most of his sermons in a city called Bethel, which is in Israel. And you know that from chapter 7, verse 10, one of Amos' major accusers is a priest in Bethel, who basically says, this guy's here preaching every day, and he's slamming the kingdom, and he's slamming the king. And we know from 1 Kings 12, another book of the Bible, the Old Testament, that there was a golden calf in the temple at Bethel. We know this. There was an idolatrous golden calf there. So we know the northern kingdom doesn't just have a justice problem, which Amos makes clear, that also has an idolatry problem as well. But Amos never mentions this golden calf in his book. Not once. And he barely mentions the spiritual idolatry of the people of Israel at all. Now why doesn't he do that? Because for him and for God, the social problems of Israel... The systemic injustice, the trampling of the poor, the neglect of the needy, these these offenses were just as egregious as the spiritual problems of Israel. Both represented a complete rejection of God, who he is, and what he cares about. And God is not simply interested in curing the spiritual problems of the the vulnerable. He is interested in, in the social problem, the poverty, the injustice suffered by the vulnerable. And now, now, why do I bring this up? Because Christians, and I throw myself in there, we have so often focused on proclaiming the spiritual message of the, of the gospel at the neglect of the social implications of the gospel. Amos is teaching us that both are necessary, both are needed for him to be made known in this world. To miss either one is to miss what God desires for his creation. That's the story of Scripture. There's no difference in God's eyes between outright idolatry and injustice, the mistreatment of the poor and the oppressed. There's no difference. God cares for people, not just the souls of people. He cares for whole people. His vision is for complete restoration, not just spiritually, but relationally and socially and economically. And you can't deny this if you've read the Old Testament, because so much of the Mosaic Law, the foundation of the Old Testament, It's about creating structures and systems in the land of Israel so that even the most vulnerable people could flourish. And I can't go over all of them now, but there were things like Sabbath years where all debts had to be forgiven in the land. There were things like uh, Jubilee years where all land was given back to your family that you had lost. And there were things like gleaning laws that allowed the poor to get food and to have an opportunity to sustain themselves. And these laws give us a clue when you, when you read them as to why God is so angry at Israel's injustice in Amos. Because they were doing the exact opposite of everything he had told them to do. The exact opposite of his design for society. Because justice reveals who God cares about. It reveals how he wants to care for them. But it also reveals why he is so angry when they are not cared for. And back in Amos chapter 5, there are, there are really just two kinds of injustice happening, as far as we can tell. There was a legal systemic injustice in the land of Israel. There's also economic oppression. And uh, you see the legal injustice in verse 10 of chapter 5, where Amos talks about the injustice at the gate. So there's injustice at the gate. Now, what does that mean? In ancient society, uh, the gate, the city gate, was where the elders were supposed to, and the judges were supposed to distribute justice to the city. This is where the elders would gather and they, spent, they would spend their time hearing cases and giving verdicts. 
This was the ancient legal system. This was the federal court of the day. It was at the gate. And Amos is saying, even at the gate, even in the place designed to defend the poor, injustice is happening. These judges were taking bribes from the rich to disenfranchise the poor, to ignore their cases, to throw them out. To side with the powerful, they would, at the expense of the weak. That's what they were doing. And the issue was systemic. The entire legal system was compromised in Israel. If you were a vulnerable member of Israelite society, if you were a foreigner, if you were a widow, and someone more powerful than you took advantage of that, there was nowhere for you to turn. There was nowhere for you to go. And the injustice wasn't just systemic legally, it was systemic economically. And you, and you really see this back in chapter 2, verse 6, where God says through Amos, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now, to understand what's going on, we need to do a little explaining. So silver here is a synonym for a very large debt, very large debt. And in the ancient world, if you defaulted on a loan, it didn't hurt your credit score, okay? It put, you went into slavery. There was no bankruptcy then. If you default on a loan, you have to go into slavery for this person to pay off your debt. That's what it means to sell the righteous. It means that people are being sold and forced into slavery in droves because of their debt. So as best as we can tell, what is happening here is that the wealthy had such enormous buying power in Amos' day, they drove up prices for even basic necessities, like a pair of sandals or food or basic supplies. And the poor were going into tremendous debt just to, get, just to survive, just to get the basic things they need to live. And the deeper into debt that they went, the more impossible it would be for them to ever be free again. It was systemic economic enslavement happening. And this is what God hates. This is what angers him so much in this book. The very people that he cares about so much are the ones being trampled on the most. And it's not hard to think about modern equivalents of, what, of, of our own society, of this kind of systemic economic injustice that's happening in our own backyard to bring Amos' words to life. And uh, one example that you've probably already thought about, in the, in the Kansas City School District, there are thousands of students and children, ages five and up, who are literally on a trajectory to nowhere. Through no fault of their own because of where they were born, they will not learn to read or write by the time they graduate, even if they graduate from high school. And many of them will have absolutely no marketable skills or opportunity for a job. None. And uh, some statistics are helpful here, and these are pulled from Mayor Sly James's blog uh, from the city's website. He says, 61% of low-income children have no children's books at home. Poor children hear as many as 30 million fewer words than their more affluent peers. By age two, poor children are already behind their peers in listening, counting, and other skills essential to literacy. By age five, a typical middle-class child recognizes 22 letters of the alphabet compared to nine from a child in a low-income family. And perhaps the most damning statistic or bullet that I saw was prison cells are built based on predictions rooted in third-grade reading proficiency in our, in our city. We know statistically who will end up in jail by the time they are in the third grade, eight years old. Systemic economic injustice. And God looks at that, and it infuriates him. 
And if we believe anything Amos has said up to this point, we must believe this. This breaks God's heart. And I can't imagine God looking at this and saying anything other than this to our society. Woe to you. Woe to you. And we are already, aren't we? We're reaping the whirlwind of this in our society, right? With the issues related of crime and poverty and marriage issues and divorce rates and family problems, all of it. So here's the point. God was always interested in a just society, not just a spiritual society, a just society. In God's opinion, in God's view, that's not even a meaningful distinction. If you know God, you love justice because justice reveals who he is. Now here's where people begin to say they swing to the opposite end of the spectrum, both in the academic world and even in the Christian world, and they start to say things like, you see, that's, you know, being rich is the problem. That's what Amos is saying. Being rich is the problem. You always oppress people if you're rich. Or to be a real Christian, maybe you've heard this, to be a real Christian, you need to renounce all your worldly goods and quit your job uh, and, become, and live as a homeless person just like Jesus did. This is a popular sentiment these days. But this completely misses the point of what Amos is teaching here. Because justice does not simply reveal who God is. It reveals who we are, who we truly are. Our problem is not that we are too rich. Our problem is not that we are too powerful, but that we don't realize how poor and how weak and how vulnerable we truly are. And this is Amos' second point. Justice reveals who we are. So if you look back at Amos chapter 2, starting in verse 9, and after all of the accusations that God has leveled against Israel, his people, this is what he says. This is his indictment against Israel. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. Also, it was I who brought you, Israel, up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Now, why in the world is God bringing up Egypt and the Exodus as he accuses them of mistreating the poor? I mean, if you're familiar with Israel's story, you know Israel was dramatically rescued from Egypt and from slavery in the beginning of her history. And there's so many things God could have pointed out or mentioned here to Israel. He could have said, you're subject to judgment. I'm angry because of what you're doing is morally reprehensible. Or what you're doing is destroying your your own society. Or if you don't care for the poor, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to do it. He could have said any of those things and they all would have been true. But in God's eyes, what he's saying here, the most disgusting part of what Israel is doing about the injustice happening in the nation is not that the rich and the powerful are morally corrupt, though they are. It's that they have completely forgotten who they are and where they come from. It's as if God is saying to them, don't you remember you were a slave in Egypt and I rescued you? You were an orphan and I became your father You were a deserted wife and I married you. You were a foreigner and I gave you a home. You were poor and oppressed and I gave you an inheritance. I made you rich. This is language all over the Old Testament. But everything you do says that you don't remember that, Israel. That you think you're better than these people that you're oppressing. That you don't need me or the salvation that I've come to offer you. That is why I am judging you. And here Amos is touching on something profound about what it means to be a human being that the Bible teaches. And you see, the Bible is always putting wealth and honor and prestige and comfort in their place, not because they are inherently bad or evil things. In fact, 
to the contrary, even in Amos's ultimate vision of what God wants to do in Israel, it's in chapter 9 of his book, Israel is there is a place of good food and wine and wealth and prosperity and beauty. These are good things that God wants. It's not that these things are bad. It's that those who are wealthy, those who are powerful, those who have worldly honor and prestige, they so quickly forget that in God's eyes, there is no difference between their poverty and their vulnerability and the homeless man on the street. Here's what I mean. In the present order of things, in our society, to have power is to have an incredible amount of influence and an incredible amount of access, right? I mean, people will overlook your most obvious flaws and selfishness. They will practically let you get away with murder if you are rich or famous in our society. It's just how it is. I mean, isn't the saying, you know, only poor people are crazy, rich people are, are eccentric, right? Uh, there's two there's different rules applied to each. And uh, this is an easy target, but if, if Donald Trump were dirt poor, and he walked around with his hairpiece going and saying, you're fired, right? We'd think he was crazy. <laughs> he would have no national platform. But as it is, right, he's just quirky. He's just funny. He gets a free pass because he's wealthy and he's influential. But to God, all of that stuff, your possessions, your position, your status, your influence, means nothing to him. In this world, your wealth will give you power, right, and, and, and incredible leverage over other people and institutions like the legal system, the political system, the corporate system. But with God, he could care less. You, you, have, you have no leverage with him. You cannot, when you meet God at the end of your days, seriously expect him to let you into the pearly gates because you were a CEO or you had a lot of money or you were a famous or rich person, Right? If you, do, if you said that, God, God was to say, so what? So what? In Romans 2, verse 11, Paul points out that God, unlike even the most righteous judge the world has ever known, God is, 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 shows no partiality. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and no one, no one, not rich, not poor, is without sin. All like sheep have gone astray. In other words... And God's opinion, which, if you think about it, is really the only opinion that makes any difference in this life. In his opinion, every human being is dirt poor, is vulnerable, is an orphan, is a widow. You have absolutely nothing. You have nothing to offer him. And at the judgment day, when everything is laid bare, there is nothing you're going to be able to point to in your life and say, Ha, look, God, aren't you proud I did this? Doesn't this get me something? Doesn't this get me somewhere? In that day, you will finally see that you are and have always been as poor, as vulnerable, and as fatherless as you could possibly be. And yet, by the pure grace of Jesus Christ, we are accepted, we are enriched, we are empowered. Not because of what we have done or what we possess, but because God saved us. We are just like Israel were slaves in Egypt until God intervened and saved us. But in the Israel of Amos' day, no one remembers that. The rich enslave the poor. The, the former slaves enslave their brothers. And that is why God is enraged. They have completely forgotten that everything they are and everything they do and everything they have is a gift of grace from God. They think they're different from the poor, but God knows better. They are poor. They are vulnerable. 
though their worldly wealth hides it from them. Israel's forgotten who they are. It shows in the way they treat the vulnerable in their society. And in a very real sense, they have become God's enemy. They have become just like the Egyptian society that God rescued them from. And that is why, in a very real way, they have become God's enemy. And that's why in chapter 5, God says in verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Woe to you. And the day of the Lord is the prophet's way of talking about judgment day. And Israel thinks that they'll be saved in that day and that all the nations around them, those evil people around them, are going to be judged and God's finally going to vindicate them. And they assume, they'd already, and they assume that God's covenant would protect them. And that's why God, when God looks at them and says, you will rue the day that you ask for my judgment because it is coming down on you. And there is nothing that your power or your money or your wealth can do to stop it. And that must have been shocking for them to hear because, and, and this is probably why Amos, no one listened to Amos's preaching in this day, okay? The Israelites had no category for God judging his own people. They always assumed their faith in the covenant would save them. But this is our last point, is that Israel's actions, they don't, it doesn't simply reveal a lack of compassion and justice. It doesn't just reveal even just a lack of basic self-awareness. It reveals a complete lack of faith. A lack of faith. Because justice always reveals true faith. At the end of Amos chapter 5, God says this to Israel. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. And even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. God is saying, Israel, your pretense, your religiosity is disgusting to me. Stop kidding yourselves. Your prayers, your worship, your tithing, they only prove your hypocrisy. I know your religion is false because if you knew what grace was, if you knew what faith was, if you knew who I am and who you are, you would champion the poor, you would defend the poor, but you could care less about them. You have no faith in me at all. In other words, Israel was called to have faith in God alone. But their treatment of the poor has revealed that for all their religious pageantry and for all their prayers and for all their sacrifices and lip services to God, they never knew or understood the God of Israel. Because justice in the Bible is always a litmus test for grace. And Amos is not the only religious teacher to pick up on this in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 25, uh, when Jesus is talking about judgment day, he's talking about the day of the Lord, uh, he compares it to a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats, one group on his right and one group on his left. And he will say to one group in that day, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was homeless and you gave me a place to stay. I was sick and you healed me. You may enter my kingdom. And he will turn to the other group in that day, and he will say, I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was thirsty, and you did not give me water. I was homeless, and you turned me away. I was needy, and you ignored me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. 
And this group will apply, Lord, when did we see you this way? As if, you know, we would have, we would have noticed if we'd bumped into you, Jesus. And Jesus says in the most radical terms possible, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, the poor, the homeless, the widow, the orphan, you did not do it to me. And Jesus is saying here, when you are saved, when you understand your spiritual sin and your spiritual poverty and the grace and compassion it took to save you, then you will see yourself in the most vulnerable people around you. You will treat them, you will respond to them as if it were me in the same way I responded to you. And the righteous person understands that salvation is a gift that must be passed on in how you care for the poor and the vulnerable. That is true faith. That is what God is looking for. Justice throughout Scripture is a sign of a real relationship with God. Justice always reveals true faith. And now we see that what was true in Amos' day, what was true in Israel's day, is still true for us. In Christ's community, if we claim to be a community of grace, we must also be a community of justice. There's no difference. One implies and necessitates and flows from the other. But if you're feeling discouraged by Amos' message, and if you read his book, it is, it is, a, it is a downer for sure. And if I'm honest, when I read his, his book and when I even deliver messages like this, I sometimes feel discouraged by the, these words. But I have to remember, and we need to remember, that we feel that way. It's not because we don't work hard enough, not because we don't give enough, not because we don't do enough, not because we don't volunteer enough, but because we don't fully understand how much we are loved. Because Jesus Christ, who calls us into this mission of justice, he emptied himself of all his riches and became vulnerable because you were more valuable than all the glory he had in heaven. He became poor. He became vulnerable. He became fatherless. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, so that we might be rich. We are his most treasured possession. That is how he sees you. That is the message of the New Testament. And that, not guilt, not self-righteousness, is what compels the church to serve the needy and the vulnerable. Because we have resources by God's grace, we have resources to share, and we have good news to tell. The infinite love of a God who's in the business of justice, of setting this world right. This is our calling. Let's ask God for help to do it. Father, we <laughs> confess that so often um, we forget, we, we forget that people live so differently than many of us do. And Lord, that your heart reaches out to them, that you've empowered us and called us to go. And Lord, not, be, not out of some sense of guilt or obligation to you, but because it's simply mimicking what you did for us and your son Jesus. We pray that his example be ever before us and ever present before us and that we would overflow in joy of what you've done. And we pray this in his name. Amen. And we couldn't do a message uh, from Amos uh, without asking ourselves some introspective questions. But I, I wanted to separate this moment from the message and bookend it uh, with praise to God um, because 
And this, in a Christian life, a service to others is not done at, at, from a place of guilt or obligation. It's about the overflowing joy of what God has done for us. And it's easy to feel guilty here or inadequate, and, and praise to God has a way of reminding us that guilt has been taken care of on the cross. And supernatural power and wisdom is available to any follower of Jesus. Um, so, but I wanted us to end on, with these three questions. Um, three questions that come right out of, out of Amos as we think about them as we apply them to ourselves. So here they are. First, are we aware of the vulnerable in our community? Are we aware of the vulnerable here? And uh, the ruling elite in Amos' day, they were so insulated from the rest of the classes and from the poor that they didn't even have a, an idea of what reality was like for them. And uh, listen, I love Johnson County. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to raise a family. And uh, we are called as a church to serve this community. And uh, I don't know if, how I would raise my kids without Deanna Rose. Okay, I get it. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I would do. Uh, a good place to live is not bad for you spiritually. But Johnson County does have a tendency to be an isolating place. Uh, and, and really, for very practical reasons in a lot of ways, because every store you could possibly think of or want is right here, so why would you leave? So my question is, how do you intentionally kind of get out of the bubble and see how other people are living in our city, how they experience life? Do you, dis- uh, do you subscribe to any publications that help you get a sense of what's happening in our community, in our, in our, in our city? Um, have you ever uh, looked at our Extension Ministries partner webpage and seen just what needs are even out there? And, uh, on our website, under the Serve tab, um, we have local partners and initiatives that we as a church have committed to uh, that are serving right here in our, in our local city, um, all over the metro. And I would encourage you to check this out. There, the needs for our city are listed right there. And if you, if you just need one first step today, I encourage you, go and check this out. It is all of our partners listed with their website and what they do. And I know we're busy, but this is, not a, this is not optional for our Christian life. Okay? This is an essential part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, the second question, um, are we at all grieved by the plight of the vulnerable in our community? Are we grieved by it? And, uh, and Amos specifically targets the rich in chapter 6 of his book, uh, not simply because they are rich, but he says because they are not grieved by the ruin of Israel. They're not grieved by it. And compassion and justice throughout Scripture are things that come from the overflow of the heart. Do we feel the plight of the vulnerable? Do we see our brokenness, our vulnerability in them? Do we empathize with them? Or do we have a tendency to judge them and say, well, it's just their fault anyway? Um, If you find yourself cynical to this whole idea or or judgmental, or even just overwhelmed or desensitized by, by the needs that are out there, I suggest you just begin to pray. Pray that God would help you understand and feel his pain toward the injustice and the brokenness of our world. And it is amazing how many fantastic organizations that we all know of and love now that serve people all over the world started when someone got down on their knees and prayed, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. A simple prayer. And then third question, um, how have you specifically been called to help the vulnerable in our community? How have you specifically been called? And uh, Amos, again, targets these leaders in Amos, in his book, uh, because they, their position and their influence and their status were gifts from God to serve others, not just themselves. And we, too, in this room, have been given so many gifts and so many opportunities uh, that many people throughout all over the world and even right here in our own backyards do not have. 
And this is actually, if you think about it, a comforting thought because it means there are needs right here around us that we can be a part of. We don't have to travel overseas to be on God's mission of justice. We can do it right here. In fact, one of the primary ways God calls his people into this issue of justice is through our everyday vocations or your nine-to-five job or your time with your family. What are the touch points between those things and the needs of your, of your community? Uh, where, where, can, where can those things overlap? Where has God placed you where you can serve? And uh, begin asking God for wisdom and opportunity there as you think about this. And with, with those questions in mind, um, we wanted to close this morning in a song, one more song of consecration. And consecration is a fancy word for dedicating something, dedicating something to God, giving it up to Him, for Him to do as He will. And justice is one of those things that we need God's wisdom and direction and power to do as a church and as individuals. So as we sing this last song, pray it over your life, pray it over your job, pray it over your family, pray it over your church. God, what would you have us do? Where would you have us go? Knowing all the while that it's his love, his dedication to us is unshakable. Let's entrust this all to him. So please stand as we sing this final song.